Welcome to Full Speed Ahead. I'm here with Robert Jacobson, the author of Spaces Open for Business. Robert, how are you today? I'm doing excellent. Thank you, Craig. Well, super excited to have you here. I've enjoyed reading your book, Spaces Open for Business. Certainly touches on the evolution of private commercialization and the opportunities that exist in space. I, I'm curious, what brought you, made you interested in this emerging topic? Well, it goes back about to a specific night, June, June 20th, 2004. I'd been tracking the X Prize, which was the contest to bring, uh, to, it was to encourage private investment in space and to get some humans to go to space. And there was a flight at the Mojave Airport by Spaceship One. I got a buddy of mine to drive with me out from Los Angeles to Mojave. And, uh, and then the morning of early Monday morning, June 21st, 2004, we saw the, the first uh, private flight to space. It was the pre-competition flight, but it was no doubt the first flight to space. And from that moment of being out there at the Mojave Airport, my life was, was changed forever. And I told myself, I have to be involved in this. I really didn't know exactly what that would look like. And it really set me on a on a course that's leading us to, the, to this conversation today, because I knew it was going to be a catalyst for um, a, a major change. It was almost as if, like, in the 90s, somebody sort of showed you something like Google and said, hey, how is this going to change the world? It was really that sort of moment for me. Now, it's interesting. Since that uh, flight, we've seen a lot of investment, whether it's Virgin Galactic uh, to uh, Jeff Bezos' investment, to Elon Musk's uh, company that he's helped incubate. It's been a lot of activity. Uh, seems to be uh, a playground for billionaires, but what are the real commercial opportunities that you think exist for, uh, for folks who aren't billionaires? So first, if you're just a, uh, you know, uh, call a Main Street investor, there are, there, there are ETFs that one can invest in that are focusing on aerospace. You can also, of course, buy stocks like Virgin Galactic or Boeing. But if you're a, a more uh, riskier investor where you're looking at private investments on like the private equity or venture capital or, or, or angel investment side, there are now hundreds of new companies, maybe more, that are playing in a very broad way regarding space. So whether your background is in, uh, um, you know, whether it's uh, you're a software developer, you know, maybe you own an insurance company, there's, I can almost assure you, there is a startup that is trying to connect space in that um, applicable area. And space, like many other domains, requires a, a wide variety of, uh, you know, service provider and infrastructure and, and, and things like logistics, which we're, you know, which you're keenly interested in, focused on. And one of the things you talk a lot about in the book is a lot of attention's uh, focused on rockets or, or getting stuff out of uh, Earth orbit. But actually, all, the vast majority of investment and opportunities is well beyond that. Um, what, where are you seeing the uh, opportunities as it relates to deep space logistics? Uh, how do we uh, create uh, opportunities, economic opportunities, whether it's you know in the lunar landscape or uh, near Earth orbit or beyond? Yeah, so uh, you know, logistics might win this war. We're gonna we're gonna probably have. There's still a lot of difficult pieces 
to solve to getting humans back to the moon. This is not necessarily an easy task or setting up um, large constellations in lower Earth orbit um, to provide a variety of uh, services for here on Earth. And all of those um, larger, you know, larger plays, whether it's putting humans back on the moon or the larger constellations, they require things here on Earth. So I would um, remind the audience that, you know, we have uh, communications where you're going to need uh, communications here on the ground. There's going to be many contractors and subcontractors that are going to be helping some of these agency, government agencies and large companies, um, you know, get, get things over the finish line. And the opportunities are, are, are vast. So if you're looking at, say, the, you know, first you, you alluded to the moon, it's going to be pieces around um, probably the supporting roles. You've got companies like Lockheed Martin, uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, Blue Origin, that are that are building things like landers, and I would suggest that the audience, you know, potentially look at what are what are the supporting things that can be uh, that are sort of like ancillary opportunities for them. In lower Earth orbit, you've got um, communications satellites, new communications infrastructure to to, to, to provide things like um, internet access is, is one. So you might want to think about the applications that could sit on top of those platforms or serving new markets. For example. I know Amazon is interested in this with their Kaipur um, constellation. Uh, Elon Musk has a new um, constellation that's already that he's got, I think, some early customers or beta, beta users called Starlink. And they're trying to serve um, areas of the world, of the Earth, that are not necessarily served at all or served well with Internet access. So if you think about opening new markets, um, look to, to whether it's, it's uh, uh, maybe it's Africa, maybe it's Southeast Asia, maybe it's remote parts of uh, North America where they don't have reliable internet access. Um, areas that I think are kind of exciting are maybe areas around manufacturing in orbit and, and, and life sciences and biotechnology. Well, what does that mean? Well, in lower Earth orbit, you have microgravity, um, basically, you know, or, or it's also known as zero gravity. And certain material, when you do things in this microgravity environment, um, those uh, things, whether it's um, maybe it's a cell that you're culturing or maybe it's a, um, an alloy that you're trying to develop, they might behave differently. And, um, and I'll give you examples. They found that like viruses um, sometimes lie dormant, um, the herpes virus, and they've, they've had noticed that astronauts sometimes are having uh, things like the herpes virus. Um, re-emerge or reactivate in orbit. Um, they've also found that um, certain uh, bacteria that are very resistant to antibiotics behave differently in microgravity. If we could understand um, what, you know, why they have these new characteristics, so recharacterize their behavior in space, we might find some really great novel applications that could be very useful for here on Earth. Hopefully that answered some of that kind of a two-part question there about the moon and lower Earth orbit. Well, Robert, uh, you, you probably triggered a lot of people when you mentioned viruses and, and their uh, dormancy and then re-emerging because I imagine this being 2020, uh, COVID outbreaks uh, in, on lunar colonies or on the International Space Station. I understand they quarantine before they go up there, but. Uh, this year has been one where uh, the virus has been uh, the story of 2020. Um, one of the things that I found really compelling was this concept of, and you dive into a lot of this, is how much we consume 
as humans on the ground, of materials that are mined, are produced here, that there's a finite amount of that material on Earth. But when we start thinking about the broader universe, the, whether it's just near Earth or uh, beyond, that opens up a ton of opportunities for resource uh, Development. I'm, I'm curious, what is it going to take to get to the point where we can start mining resources uh, in outer space? That's a great question. So for historical context, it was through space flight and through imagery from space that we were first able to see ourselves as citizens of Spaceship Earth, that, that term that I think Buckminster Fuller coined. Uh, and then later, so it's pretty common that humans think of ourselves as, you know, we're, 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 we know that we're citizens of planet Earth. But it takes a little bit more of an abstraction to say, hey, we're also citizens of the solar system. And that solar system does have finite resources, but it has, but when you start taking the context of our entire solar system, it has vast amount of resources that Earth, um, that instead of just mining the Earth, but if we start going, thinking about the solar system, could potentially take care of a lot of our, of our, our, lot of our challenges because we have these um, rare earth elements that we need for, um, you know, our cellular phones, our batteries, you know, we're going with further electrification of the planet. And then rather of, of just purely strip mining the earth, we should be thinking about how can we smartly and sustainably use resources in the rest of the solar system. I'm not suggesting uh, a complete strip, you know, using all of them, but there is enough for, for hundreds of generations. But what we need to have happen is lower cost access to space. So thankfully, through smart investments by our governments, that's, and that's thankfully through taxpayers, and high net worth individuals, whether it's Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, um, they are investing in radically bringing down the cost of access to space. So although these rockets, this rocket, uh, right now we're using chemical propulsion, so these rockets are transportation infrastructure, and they're focused on reusability. So instead of costing, say, $10,000, um, you know, a kilogram or even per pound on getting mass to orbit, there is the potential of bringing it down to sub $20, even maybe even sub $10. And that's a radical notion. If you think, you know, uh, say average person weighs 150 pounds or something, you can get 150 pounds for several hundred dollars to orbit. That could free up the number of applications and allow, really allow um, the entrepreneurial uh, uh, spirits to unfold into the space frontier to allow us to do things um, like mining the asteroids and the moon. And what has happened for millions, if not billions of years, is you've had asteroids that have been hitting places like the moon. So at the top surface of the moon, you have littered all sorts of really useful materials from basically this cosmic rainstorm of, um, of metal materials. And then you have deposits on the asteroids. So there's lots of really interesting places for us to go. I think in the midterm, you're probably going to see the resources of space extracted and used in space to create an in-space economy. It's probably a lot further out until it's easy enough for us to sort of take, say, take a platinum metal and bringing it back at any sort of scale back to Earth. I think at first it's going to be in space, you know, use before taking it back to Earth, just for some, for some uh, more realistic context. 
So Robert, you mentioned, I mean, $10 a pound to get, is that to get to the moon or is that just to get uh, out of the orbit, uh, at, off of our gravity map? Just, just off the Earth. Right now in 2020, the approximate, the, the range in price to get about a, a kilogram to the surface of the moon, uh, this is not humans, this is just say, uh, just say non-human payload, is hovering a little a million to $1.2 million a kilogram to get a, you know, a kilogram of something probably without a human to the moon. But to get um, off the earth, you know, sort of say several hundred miles, uh, say, you know, think of uh, the, the International Space Station, which is equivalent to the distance of, say, about Los Angeles to, I think, about Phoenix, Arizona, to give you an idea of how many, how many miles away it is, because the edge of space is 62 miles above sea level or 100 kilometers. And and then, this, then the space station sits a little further, you know, a, a few hundred miles um, above sea level, just to give the audience some perspective. Yeah, but a kilo going from L.A. to Phoenix is around, you know, 40 cents uh, a kilo uh, for that distance, but you're not going up. Uh, it gets exponentially more expensive when you go up. I, I'm curious, when you when you start talking about, you know, a million dollars to get something to uh, the moon, that's a lot more expensive than what air freight rates are today, where it's, you know, a couple dollars a kilo from China to the United States. We're talking about something on a completely different uh, level of expense. If you're going to do heavy mining or manufacturing in space, you've got to get that down. What does it take from your perspective, to really drive down the cost of transportation uh, to, to get it to a place where it's, you know, at least in a, in a place where it can be affordable for scale? Well, again, for context, the way it used to work with um, in the space industry is everything was done customized or onesies or twosies. There wasn't this idea of reusability. There, there's a there's an idea that it get, the story gets tossed around that if every time you had to fly... Um, uh, the, uh, if every time you wanted to fly, say from you know Chicago, New York, you get on your seven three, your Southwest flight on a seven thirty seven, you get to where you're going, and then to come back, you had to rebuild the seven thirty seven. Your ticket price would go up dramatically. That's what's been happening historically with space. When we had the space shuttle, there was a the thought that the space shuttle would fly, fit, you know, about once a week. That never, or even once a month, that never really happened. So it was very expensive. So what they're having to do is, is it, it, these companies are really focused on making engines that are restartable and reusable like thousands of times. Like that's never been done before. We're getting, we are on the path to making that, to making that a uh, uh, realistic option so that rockets are, or, or the spacecraft, the rocket, the, the, the launcher is just something, you know, you gas up, you use, you've got your consumable, which is fuel. And, and you know, and that's, you know, you're not worrying about rebuilding the engine every time. You can kind of gas it up and go. I think we're still just a few years, few years off, but it is, um, but but it's but it's it's starting to happen. That's why there's uh, heavy investments on the reusability on the reusability side of space. Once you're able to bring that price down, and, and this is this is an activity that's already happening, but you have the early um, robotics in space and things like 3D printing and using robots because. It's going to be a lot of activity, you know, say you're building a bunch of uh, maybe a large um, uh, solar panel array or you're building or you need to do some mining on the moon. 
you don't need humans to actually do some of that nitty-gritty tactical activity. You're going to have robots doing a lot of it, and then you're going to have the overseers being humans. So the great thing about space is we can have a lot of robotic activity, and that will in turn leverage all the things that we're learning about machine learning and artificial intelligence and, and all the other key things that's already ongoing here on Earth. So it's a great way that space will be able to borrow from some of these other um, uh, domains. Is, is space development and commercialization technology, uh, is it respond to Moore's law? Are we going to see compounding and exponential uh, lower cost, exponential uh, cost drops, as well as uh, innovation? Or is there, is there where, how, is, how, do we, how should we think about space commercialization? We should think about space, we can think of it a little bit like the internet. Um, go back to the 1990s. Um, we all now rely on all these applications, whether it's through our phone or through, you know, whether it's, um, you just think of the myriad of applications we all enjoy daily. But it all sat on infrastructure. So even to get Google, which is probably now considered more of an infrastructure company, early on I'd call it an applications company, it needed things like servers. Say, so it probably, were, Google required things like companies like Cisco to, uh, to um, do what it needed to do. I think space is a bit like this, where we're developing a core infrastructure of things like um, spaceports, launch facilities, um, new satellite infrastructure, new types of satellites that are, you know, just they're, they're, think of it like your iPhone. We have smaller satellites that have a lot of punch. They're almost disposable. We have that going on with um, the satellite sector. So as we're building up this core infrastructure, that will then allow the um, applications developers to create new businesses and new tools that will be useful for us here on Earth and in the space ecosystem. Does that hopefully um, answer the question? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating topic and one that, you know, I get asked, we've announced space waves and people are like, well, this is cool, but why? And, you know, I, I, I talk a lot about the fact that, some, you know, ultimately space commercializations, logistics and supply chain challenges but it's interesting as you sort of dive into the topic, and you have done this in your book, uh, about where this will end up in a couple of centuries. Because I think that's what we're, we're talking about here is not what happens next week, next month, next year. Certainly there'll be developments there, but we're actually looking at the future of society over the next couple of centuries and beyond. And one of the quotes that you have in your book is you quote Jeff Bezos uh, talking about manufacturing and heavy industry. And, and this quote uh, that you uh, took from a conference that he attended uh, in 2019, he says, I predict that in the next few hundred years, all heavy industry will move off the planet. It will be just way more convenient to do it in space where you have better access to resources and better access to 24 seven solar power. I mean, is that something that you also subscribe to? I, I, I would say if a, a variation of it. Jeff is what you would call an O'Neillian. I'm probably an O'Neillian. And it's based on the, uh, the philosophy of the late prof, uh, physics professor from Princeton University, Gerard K. O'Neill, who wrote an, uh, an instrumental book that was probably, it, it's probably the Bible for Jeff Bezos' entire life called The High Frontier. Highly recommend it. And in this book, um, Jerry O'Neill, he was trying to teach students about, uh, it was, the, it was uh, around the time of the Apollo 11, the moon landing, and some of the students were going, why are we doing this? What are we doing? 
So he basically wanted to figure out um, some ways to practical lessons to, to teach his students about why we're going to space. And, and in that, he started coming, they started co-developing ideas of what we could do with the moon or living in free space. And the idea is that using the resources of space, the, the sun, um, metals, and other resources on the moon and elsewhere, we can create this really great um, infrastructure for humanity to both move out on and really thrive, building very large space habitats. And, and, and Jeff basically said, took an extension of that philosophy and said, hey, why not just take all of our dirtier manufacturing, the things that maybe um, that we don't really, um, nobody wants to have a, you know, a dirty factory or, or having our waterways polluted and doing that in space. Although we can't yet do that today, it's something we can definitely aspire to. And we are, we are, we are, it's, it's an, I call it, we're, it's embryonic at this point. But if we just seed the idea with this as a possibility, we can really have a great future. And it doesn't have to be like a dystopian, you know, um, everybody moving off Earth and moving to Mars or the moon. It can actually be a place where if people want to live most of their life on Earth and then have the retirement home on the moon because it's lower gravity, easier on your bones, or maybe living in a, um, on a space station with artificial gravity, this is what's possible. Or vice versa, there will be people that will maybe want to live and work in space and on the moon, and they will go to Earth on vacation. It's not going to be an either-or. This is about um, choice, giving billions of people the choice, uh, and giving um, all humans an even, even, even higher standard of living than we live today. And that's a difficult concept to think about, but through the utilization of space and the resources that space has, that is possible. And there's nothing, there's nothing in terms of the physics of it that say, no, it's just something we need to start peppering into the, to the zeitgeist of our being. And energy, and the other thing that uh, is striking is the sort of concept of having solar panels in space that beam energy down to Earth. Can you explain a little bit how that uh, potentially could work? Certainly. So I'm not a, a, a what you're referring to, Craig, is called uh, space-based solar power. I am certainly not an expert in this area, but know some about this. So the idea that uh, Professor uh, Gerard K. O'Neill talks about is that you'd have these um, essentially uh, a solar farm where you put solar power in space and you beam it back down to Earth. So that the, that the terrestrial solar power that we have today you know, it only has uh, a certain amount of efficiency. But if you put these solar power, you know, the solar cells in space, you could use, get a lot higher form of um, efficiency in terms of your use of the panels. And you could beam them down sort of, uh, you know, you, uh, as through microwave or other, there's different ways you could beam that down to Earth. And you would need fairly large footprints on the Earth, totally feasible in terms of we have the, we have the space. You're talking about, um, you know, outside of a city, you would have a pretty large solar farm but directed energy could be a weapon, it could be weaponized, and it's not been done yet. But what you're seeing and why this is an important area still to study is that um, U.S. Air Force actually currently has a space-based uh, solar power experiment testing some of the early technology on there. They've got this uh, unmanned spacecraft, I think it's called the, uh, what's the XB-1, I've got the, might be forgetting the name, but it's this unmanned craft, they're, they're doing some early tests. Um, China wants to invest very heavily in it. And why I would I'd probably tell um, Western countries and, and U.S. government to still continue investing in it is if you can own the energy supply, future energy supply chain, 
it's uh, the, the the strategic implications are countless, and China is investing in this area, and it's controversial. There's some people who believe that we can't do this. Where I think what's the more likely um, near-term path is they'll continue to study this, and we will probably see in-space solar power. And what that means is beaming energy to the moon, beaming energy to other spacecraft, maybe to you know to your assets in space. I still think that it's probably oh gosh, and this is just spitballing from what I've heard from real experts, decades out until you could actually have something meaningful on Earth. But the reason the military was interested in is, is, is that's very expensive logistically to move things like um, diesel fuel around in, in, on, in the war field. So um, they were looking at, like, how can we just beam energy right to, the, uh, to our people in, 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 in remote bases? Well, when I played SimCity, there was an option later in the game to have this big satellite dish that you could get uh, power directly to your town, and you solved all your power problems if you got to that point in the evolution of the game. Um, Robert, if we think about short-term opportunities for folks that are in logistics, uh, perhaps that are interested in uh, this sort of emerging category of space commercialization, where should they be focusing their energy? Or perhaps we have someone who is in a, at a university thinking about their career that wants to get involved in space commercialization. What is the opportunities that are more near term that they should be thinking about and getting involved in? I, I think it's maybe optimizing that link between communication and communications. We've got all this talk about 5G. It's happening. 5G is, is slowly being unrolled. And we are also now looking at putting um, a 4G network on the moon and 5G satellites around the Earth. And what's, what you can do with 5G is you can, um, you can, it's going to be really important around uh, IoT, and the, and which is basically the connection between um, devices and machines. Um, and when you're talking about transportation, I think there is numerous ways, whether it's uh, if you think about maybe we're moving some cargo and you want to be able to change the temperature of something while something is midstream, or you want to know what is its condition, or you're trying to, uh, you know, there, something that you're trying to move. I think five. I think that connection between five G satellites and logistics has a lot of opportunity. So depending on what the um, uh, the listener, what their field of expertise is, whether they have a trucking company or other types of shipping company, maybe they're doing maritime logistics, start looking at, like, where are the gaps? Where are you really frustrated? And there could be a space segment that could help fill that. So a lot of that might end up meaning, you, you know, you don't need to go out and build a new satellite infrastructure because someone else's, but maybe looking at what are the software components, what are the interstitial pieces between in that last mile that maybe could you know could be improved whether there's another vendor that you could just be a customer with or a partner with or you know or co-invest with that that's that would be my suggestion a lot of it's uh, as you mentioned communications is key uh certainly the uh, development of the telecommunications infrastructure and a lot of the media that we know in the internet foundationally came through the invention of the satellite so certainly i would hope that whomever's building the 4g on the moon would come to chattanooga tennessee on my mountain, on Elder Mountain, and fix the cellular tower there before they go to the moon. AT&T, we're talking to you. Um, anyways, Robert, I, I appreciate your time today. Uh, it's a fantastic topic and a really great read. I, I recommend 
anyone to pick it up that's interested in this uh, topic, certainly something that we'll dive into uh, throughout space waves, but also uh, beyond, uh, because it's an emerging opportunity. A lot of venture capital is interested in it. And we've seen some public offerings, uh, uh, whether it's Virgin Galactic, SPAC, or others, that have uh, created opportunities for people to get invested in space. A really important topic, Robert. Thanks for so much for coming on today. Greg, thank you, and I really appreciate you guys investing and finding a lot of interest in this area. Uh, thank you, and thank you. Please tune in for the rest of Space Waves, and if you've missed anything or would like to get the content on demand, you can do that through the tv.freightwaves.com site. You can also get it through the Apple TV or Roku devices uh, on the Freightways TV app.